Open your Bible with me to Psalm chapter 30. There are certain hymns that shape our lives. Think about it as well, the hymn we just sang and how meaningful that is to so many of us. Some hymns have the ability to articulate our faith with words that we could never quite find on our own. Others seem to come at just the right time in our life to help us express our love for Christ or they comfort us in a time of need. Some seem to shine the light on a certain truth of Scripture that causes it to burn brightly in our hearts. Yesterday, I was sitting at the piano and playing through the hymns that we would sing this morning together as a church. I often will do that on Saturday just to prepare my own heart for for gathered worship. And the second verse from 10,000 Reasons just leapt off the page at me. It shepherded me in a way. And I want to read to you those lyrics now. You're rich in love and slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I will keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Those are such helpful words. And as I sang, I was reminded of the reality that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, just like Psalm 103 verse 8 says. And I thank the Lord for the countless times that I have known those lyrics to be true in my own life, as I think back and remember how I have experienced the goodness of the Lord. The lyrics to that hymn help shape my understanding of who God is and even lend me language by which to praise God. One of my favorite hymn writers from the 19th century is an English vicar named Henry Light. And uh, Mr. Light wrote this. Poetry and music are never better employed than when they unite and join in the celebration of the praises of God. What he's saying here is that the work of music, when you have poetry and music that, that join together, they don't have a higher purpose than to bring praise to God. That's true of every part of our life. The ultimate aim is God's glory. And that's what we hope that the songs that we sing week by week do for us as we unite poetry and music. We seek to praise the Lord, to encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That's the language that Paul uses in Colossians chapter 3. This is the role of singing in our church. And and in an even more profound way, the role of the book of Psalms contained in the Bible. We've made it our tradition at the trails to spend the summer months in the book of Psalms. Uh, This summer has been a unique joy. Uh, as we took an unhurried walk through Psalm 23 and uh, in a series entitled The Good Shepherd. Following that was a handful of very helpful psalms that have invited us to continue to just gaze and stare at who God is, to study the character and the nature of God. The psalms hold such a special place in Scripture, and that's true on multiple levels. I'll highlight this one. Um, 
being divine revelation, that's what the Bible is, so being divine revelation, God speaks to us through the Psalms, but also being the hymnal of the church through ages past, these songs teach us to pray. They teach us how to speak back to God. So you might think of the Psalms like this. In the Psalms, God speaks to his people and we speak back to him. The Psalms are meant to form us to be a certain kind of people, a God-centered, Christ-loving, spirit-dependent, lamenting, trusting, joy-filled, ever-thankful people. has a long string of adjectives. And there's a lot here. The Psalms articulate every season of the soul. Psalm 30 is a classic hymn of thanksgiving that is a wonderful conclusion to our summer in the Psalms. It both begins and ends with praise. So what I would like to do is explore this text and and allow it to lead us in worship this morning. And my prayer is that as the days turn into months and the months turn into years, that we might maintain our wonder of the great salvation that God has given us. And that our understanding of the gospel would produce uh, ever-deepening, thankful hearts. That's my prayer. And so Trails Church, let's sing like never before. I'm borrowing a line from uh, the same tune we just talked about a minute ago. And let's sing like never before for these three reasons that we find here in Psalm 30. One, God has given us a song of salvation. We'll find this in verses one through four. Second, God has shown us steadfast mercy. We'll find this in verses five through 10. And then finally, God has promised us unshakable joy. We'll find that in verses 11 and 12. You believe that? We'll see it right on the page. Let me invite you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and not let my foes rejoice over me, O Lord my God. I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be Merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing, 
You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever and ever and ever. Amen. Would you please be seated? The first reason we can sing like never before is because God has given us a song of salvation. The first word out of David's mouth in the Hebrew is the English word extol. But though it's an English word, it's probably not one that any of you used this week. To extol. So let's just do a little synonym work to help us understand what that word extol means. It means to exalt or glorify or praise or give thanks to. And David hurries to tell us why his heart is filled with such thankfulness. And the reason is that God had given him so great a salvation. The metaphor in verse 1 communicates this astonishing contrast between the exalted God, the extolled God, high lifted up, who has stooped so low to lift him up out of the pit. God has drawn him up, he says, which are the very words that that define the name of Moses in Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. Moses means drawn up from the water. It's a picture of a bucket being Uh, lowered into a deep well, and then being lifted up, being full of water. Now, you can imagine my amazement as we come to the end of the Psalms, and we're about to start Exodus next week, and here in verse 1, Moses is mentioned. Aren't you thrilled at that? (laughs) All right, so next week we start Exodus, uh, but we're not there yet. We've got to get back to Psalm 1. But I just love how in our commitment just to preaching chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in God's providence, this is definitely no plan. We ended at Psalm 30, and we get to start Exodus next week. So back to verse 1. Come on. In verse 1, David recalls his foes who would have rejoiced in seeing him die. And he praises God that his, his enemies don't have that joy. Instead, the tables have turned, and David knows the joy instead of being rescued. He sings of how he cried out to God from his sickness and from his distress, calling on God's covenant name, Yahweh. But not just Yahweh. There's a personal pronoun he uses. My God. David feels the nearness of the Lord. He wants the nearness of the Lord. And we've seen David do this in previous psalms, praying to God on what ground? On the sure footing of God's promise, he with boldness comes before his maker. And the lyric of verse 2 makes it clear that God heard his prayer and God healed him, restoring him to wholeness. The word healed has both a physical and a spiritual contour to it. Uh, The way we might say this in modern language is, it's like I had one foot in the grave. I was a breath away. I I saw the light. And then God in his great mercy 
redeemed me, spared my life. Thanksgiving is multiplied as David remembers God's kindness to him. Verse 3 adds not only that he was spared, but he was restored. And in that word, we find a happy recovery of all that was lost. Relationship with God is restored. Wholeness of heart is restored. You see, David had known health of both body and soul, but for a season, lost both. And we'll see in a few minutes why that's so. What's important now is to note that the occasion for this song is his heart overflowing with joy and praise and thanksgiving that God had saved him and spared his life. Verse 4, it's, David is so full of joy. He, it's like, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. It's not, one tongue is not enough. Like All the people of God have got to get in on this singing. He calls the singing saints the faithful ones in the Hebrew. The faithful ones to join him in praising God, declaring the great saving power that David has known. Okay, so all this begins with, uh, in verse 1, David himself is singing a song of salvation. By the time we get to verse 4, a whole choir has joined him in this song of praise. Okay, so the word that I want to give us to think about as we think about these first four verses is a musical term. It's used in other applications, but I want us to think of it musically. It's the word rehearse. David is rehearsing God's salvation, and we would do well to do the same. Like a piano student rehearses their music. Like a singer rehearses their song. Like a violinist rehearses over and over the part of a score. Let us be a people who rehearse the salvation of God day by day, practicing it over and over. This psalm teaches us to be a people who remember, recall, reconsider, and retell the way that God has saved us. How do we do that? Well, let me invite all of us who have tasted and seen the salvation of God, let's for a moment rehearse the salvation that God has given us. Think of the astonishing condescension of the high and exalted God who stooped so low to redeem your life. Ponder the perfect obedience of Christ in his life that was lived in your place to earn for you, to achieve for you what you could not achieve on your own. Look to the cross where payment for your sin was made not in part but in full. Recall the resurrection that guarantees your own resurrection in the life to come. Remember the pit of sin and shame and death 
that Christ found you in. And the stunning way he has lifted you from it. Look to Christ, Christian. And rehearse the salvation of God. It is so great. And having rehearsed it, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing from a place of renewed wonder and thankfulness. As old Dr. Watson said, let all your sacred passions move while you rehearse his deeds. And that is what we do week by week when we gather in this room. We gather to rehearse the deeds of God, to rehearse his salvation, to sing the song of salvation. The second compelling reason we have to sing like never before is that God has shown us steadfast mercy. He's shown us steadfast mercy as David provides another reason why both he and all the saints should give thanks to the Lord. He uses the most poetic and memorable phrase of this psalm in verse 5. Listen to the hope that courses through these words. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This promise of God's word has been a drumbeat of comfort to so many through the ages who have sinned and suffered, who have known both the discipline of God and the restoration of God. This is a promise, to use the words of Cooper, that behind every frowning providence, God hides a smiling face. That's true for those of us who are in Christ. And David uses a remarkable set of contrasts to explain God's mercy to his people. So kids, if you want to know what contrasts are, it's where we talk about two two things that don't belong together, and we're showing how different they are. And what David's doing is showing how different life was in this season of, of sin, we'll get to that in a minute, and how different it is now that he's in right relationship with God. Notice all these. Every phrase is bursting with contrast, anger and favor, a moment, a lifetime, weeping and joy, night and morning, strong and dismayed. This psalm gives us more and more detail of the reason why this hymn is being written. Why all the thanksgiving, David? Why is your heart so full of joy? Why are you calling all of us to give thanks to God's name? Oh, because of God's steadfast mercy toward his people. It's easy to miss what is really happening in verses 6 through 10 if you just read it one time through. And so let me explain what's happening in these verses. David begins by rightly acknowledging that it was God's favor that had given him such success in life. He speaks in imagery. It's almost now as if he's standing on top of a mountain of blessings. He's looking back over his life and says, like, look how much God has given me. Look how much God has done for me. However, he gets so focused on enjoying the gifts that he forgets the giver. He set his heart 
on the blessings rather than the fount of every blessing. Many scholars describe this condition we find David in as practical atheism. Practical atheism. What does that mean? Well, it's not that David doesn't believe in God. He's placed his faith genuinely in God. But then for a season, in a a season of great blessing, not a season of suffering, in the season of plenty, he becomes so preoccupied with his things and his life and his ambitions that God gets pushed to the margins of his life. What was once the blazing center of his life just is now an afterthought. He's become self-confident instead of God-dependent. He, it's like he's forgotten the words of Job who said, you give and you take away, come what may, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he says instead, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. What does that sound like? an overdose of Texas pride? It sounds just like the voice of pride. Look at my life. I'm the king of Israel. I have everything that I need, everything I've ever wanted right here at my disposal. I I used to be out in this desert watching my flock by night. I was so low in my position. Now I've been exalted I'm the king, the shepherd of all of God's people. Nothing could ever take this away. He's self-confident. And the thing is, uh, David's theology is right. It's his heart that is wrong. You see, God had promised David that nothing would shake him from the throne ruling over his people. That just wasn't the whole story. You see, God was after David's heart to make him a man after God's own. God was so committed to David, covenantally promising himself to David, and he was at work in his heart. In in the book of 2 Samuel, God promised David that, that he would sit on the throne. But in that promise was also another promise. And I want to read that for you now. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. God says this, I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. Here, God's commitment to David, but is also his commitment to work in his life so that his heart loves God more than anything else. And God does this from a place of relationship, not to try to get back at his people, but out of love for his people. It sounds a lot like Proverbs 3.12, which says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as the Father disciplines the Son in whom he delights. So what's David doing here? Is he mad at God for the discipline that he's taken him through? No, he's thankful. Because this discipline that the father had given him was an act of mercy toward him. 
It wasn't an act of judgment. And as we think about all of this, one of my favorite passages from Scripture, James 2.13 comes to mind. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In Christ, that is absolutely true. For all of us in Christ, that is true. Um, what David expresses here is an expression of true repentance. He's concerned not only for his own destruction, but for the glory of God. For the glory of God's name, he wants to be restored into right relationship with him. And God answers his prayer. God supplies all the mercy his people need. The way we respond, I think, to these verses is with... um, We've talked about contrasting phrases. I'd like to just throw one of my own in the ring. Confident dependence. Those two words don't generally go together, right? Confidence and dependence. But with a life of faith, they do. Confidence not in ourselves, but confidence in who God is. Dependence not in our wisdom or intellect or resume or the possessions that we have acquired or the career that we have built, not even in the family that God has given us, but dependence on God alone. Even in this song, Bursting with Joy, it doesn't teach us to think lightly of sin or to wink at it when we see it in our lives. So I've had some serious talks with this guy this week. Because this pull toward practical atheism, it wasn't just David that felt that. I feel that. And if you've walked with Christ maybe longer than a month or so, I bet you have too. So I've just been asking myself some probing questions. That's what the Psalms do. They read through us. They humble us. And they show us Christ. So let me ask one of these questions to all of us now. In what area of your life are you prone to independence instead of depending on God? In what area of your life are you prone to independence instead of depending on God? Let us not say, in a season of blessing, I shall not be moved. Look at this mountain of blessings that God has put me on top of. Surely this will be smooth sailing from the time out. Instead, um, let us say, should my life be torn from me, every worldly pleasure, when all I possess is grief, God, be then my treasure. Let us treasure and value and love the giver above all of his gifts and stay dependently tethered to a good and merciful God. I just want to say, if you find yourself a genuine believer in Christ, you know that your heart has been born again by faith, but you've drifted into a season of practical atheism Jesus stands with arms wide open to receive you. Repent of your sin and run to him. Repent of your self-salvation and self-dependence 
and cry out to the God who is full of mercy. He will never be taken away from you. You have his word. But allow the Father to discipline you in his great love. God has shown us and will continue to show us evermore steadfast mercy. And the third reason to sing like never before is that God has become our unshakable joy. So let's just retrace our steps real quick. God had given David this song of salvation. He'd shown him his continual need for mercy. And now this song ends with a chorus of joy. More contrasts are used to describe the before and after work that God has done in his life. There's mourning and dancing. So in this moment, the tears are dried up, the face is lifted, the mascara has been wiped off. That's for you ladies. (laughs) David was not a mascara wearer. Um, And his feet begin to move to the rhythm of God's goodness, proof that David was not a Baptist. He's moving a little bit, you know? I'm embarrassing my children right now. (laughs) But I don't care. Um, David danced before the Lord in his youth when his heart would overflow with love for his God. And here he dances again in the restoration of fellowship with God. He speaks in poetry to describe this supernatural change of clothing. From a garment of sackcloth to a garment of gladness. Okay, so when a person was mourning, they would wear sackcloth. Sackcloth is a garment made of camel hair. It's itchy and scratchy and terrible. It's terrible for the wearer and it looks bad to the the viewer. You would wear that to demonstrate, to remind yourself of a season of mourning and to communicate to others that you are a person who is filled with sorrow. And David said, it's not like those clothes have just been thrown in the laundry basket. Those clothes were thrown in the trash can. He's done with that. And now God has clothed him in a garment of gladness. That is a fascinating thought, right? God has clothed him in a garment of gladness. Now, you can't just wear a garment of gladness. You also have to wear other clothes. But here he's saying it's like like God has... Uh, robed him, surrounded him, blanketed him in a warm blanket of joy. He's wearing joy. It's like a warm blanket all over his life. And as the song ends, it comes to the same place that it began, with thankfulness and praise. Verse 11 shows us how The silence is now filled with singing. He says that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. With every note of this psalm, we are hearing the reality of what God has done. God has done a deep work in David's life, exchanging his sorrow for joy. God is his unshakable joy. And I want us to think carefully about joy and sorrow in the Christian life because at one time passed through this, we may get the sense of like, well, David suffered for a moment and experienced affliction and then he had a whole lifetime of joy. But if we consider the complete biography of David, 
and see both the mountains and valleys that his life was constantly plagued by, especially after he becomes king, compared with the witness of the New Testament, let me simply remind us that in our lives we may know seasons of extended sorrow and suffering, but that in Christ we still have joy because our joy is not connected to our circumstance. Our joy is connected and found in God. In Christ, there is a joy higher than the clouds of suffering. In Christ, there is a river of joy deeper than our sorrows. And for the Christian, joy is not something that awaits us. Joy is something that is promised us now in Christ. Even when we planted the trails, this is why we began in the book of Philippians. Established in joy is what our church was. We planted in the joy that is ours in Christ. Yes, in the future, but right now. So if you just need a reminder of what joy looks like in the life of a Christian, let me encourage you to read the book of Philippians this week. It'll take you about 45 minutes. And just let your heart remember and be renewed in the joy that has been given to us in Christ and see how this makes us, shapes us, forms us into being a thankful, ever thankful people. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, God has given us a song of salvation. Let's sing it. In Christ, God has shown us steadfast mercy. And so let us be a repenting and confidently dependent people. In Christ, God has given us unshakable joy, a joy that will not diminish or deplete with time. For it is a joy that is found in him, the fount that never runs dry. It'll only grow brighter and fuller throughout the ages. So how can we keep from singing? He has done so much. Let's sing like never before. I invite you to pray with me. Father, I thank you for giving us a song of salvation. I praise you for the mercy that you've shown us, that you're committed to continue to show us. I thank you for the joy that is ours in Jesus. We stole you, praise you, give thanks to you. In Christ's name, amen.